welcome to the Gregory House podcast. This is Fully God, Fully Man by Deacon John Clark. Good morning, Gregory House South and North. Um, what we're going to do today in earnest now, we're going to start chapter one and pick up big major themes of chapter one of a call to Christian formation. Um, the overriding uh, desire right here is just what I prayed at the end, uh, to discern Jesus Christ in all things and all things in Jesus Christ, right? So to discern Jesus Christ, and not in some myopic way, but to see him as that imagination, staggering singularity that holds all things together, right? To, so this is a massive vision of um, seeing the world in Jesus Christ and all things in it. And so this is basic to this revival of word and sacrament in the life and body of the church that we want to see. And it's really actually basic to um, that uh, evangelical Catholicity that's the genius of Anglicanism to do that. And so to start with this, I, with, with this if, well, well, let me just say this. If you look at our syllabus, where we're going for the next several weeks is reality in Jesus Christ with uh, with specificity to knowing God, that Jesus Christ actually opens up the triune life of God to us. Uh, reality in Christ with respect to the human person, that um, an understanding of what it means to be authentically human is in a self-referential project, but it's actually to discern the self in the light of that authentically human self in which we abide. And of course then, you know, other humans as well. And then to see the world in Jesus Christ. And so, um, to see that he is not only um, maker of all things, redeemer of all things, but that he's the quintessential sacrament of the world, right? So if we're, if we're to see that, that the world um, um, opens up to us spiritual realities, we're gonna start right here with Jesus Christ, who's the, who's, who's the lodestar of that. And so this first conversation we wanna have is that Jesus Christ is fully God, and at one and the same time, fully man, that he's actually binding together and bringing together what ought to be together, uh, authentic divinity, authentic humanity in his very person. So let's start right here, hearing the word of the Lord. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a text from John. I'm going to read a text from Paul. And think about this as I, as I read him. We're talking about the very Jewish John and the Pharisee Paul, who calls himself Hebrew of Hebrews, right? What are they doing here in, te- in this apostolic teaching? Start right at the top of uh, the notes on page one. John says, John chapter one, in the beginning, think Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In the beginning, we might say, he was in the world. From the beginning, he was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And in the fullness of time, the word became flesh, tabernacle, and dwelt with us, tabernacled with us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, that utterly unique one. No one, says John, has ever seen God. 
think, think back to, you know, Exodus when Moses says, let me see your glory. And he says, I'll hide you in the, in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass before you. You cannot see my face, right? You can see my, you can see my hindquarters. <laughs> you can't see my face, not yet. <clears throat> in the fullness of time, this one who is at the Father's side, or, in, or in, in the Greek, even better, who is in the bosom of the Father, right in the very epicenter of the triune life of God, that's where the eternal word is, he has made him known. He's exegeted God's very life for us. He's the divine self-revelation, self-exposition of who God is, says John, in the beginning. So John has an encounter with the living Christ, and he says we need to begin again at the beginning. Listen to Paul. For by him, Jesus Christ, not just the eternal word, but specifically here, the word born of Mary, right? This one, the fully human one. By him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things in earth. He starts to give us an exposition, exempting nothing. Things in heaven, things in earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in, in him, all things hold together rather than having a, um, a, a nonsensical world, a, an endlessly atomized and fractured world, right? We have. A, an intelligible world, a coherent world. All things hold together in him. He is divine, the divine exposition of the world and all things. He is the beginning, Paul says. Not just was present in the beginning, he is the beginning. Where do we start? At the beginning. Begin at the beginning. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead and the author of the new beginning, the first fruits that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the way Paul will talk in Ephesians and elsewhere here in Colossians, he's got this grand cosmic scope, right? That the, uh, that, that the one who brings heaven to bear upon earth also brings earth to bear upon heaven and unites all things and reconciles all things. So he's preeminent in all things. You see these two texts, we see that in, in wake of Jesus Christ, um, the people of Israel are beginning again at the beginning, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new datum that causes them to go right back to first things and do that. And so we see that throughout Israel's, think about Israel, what, what's going on in the Old Testament. Yahweh takes them like a, like a lump of clay, he says. He puts them on a potter's wheel, right? And he, and, he, and he starts to press into them, this creative impress. He starts to mold. He starts to um, break down anything that's calcified, anything that ought not be there. And as he does it, <laughs> it calls forth, right? As, as, as the Lord draws near to Israel, it calls forth secret enmity there. Right? When you think of Moses on Mount Sinai, People are saying, Moses, can you make sure that God, that he doesn't come near us anymore, right? The creative impress of the Lord in Israel is making a people for himself, and he's accommodating his own self-disclosure to 
ways that Israel could know him. He's accommodating himself, and at the same time, he's calling forth and adapting Israel so that um, they're a, a fit uh, recipient for the self-disclosure, the, the, the impartation of God. He's making for himself a, a unique priestly royal people right in the middle of the cosmos that has this unique uh, relationship with the Lord. As our Lord Jesus comes, uh, you think about his ministry, not only does he, as he draws near, not only does he call forth perplexity and opposition from his foes, as you might expect, but um, his friends. So at every major turning point in the Gospels, as Jesus shows what it means to be Messiah, he gets reticence from, right, um, his friends. When he enters into the waters of Jordan, John baptized me. John says, uh-uh, you're overturning my expectations. I, I just said, right, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but it couldn't be like this, right? Um, Peter, same thing. I just said, you're the, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now you say you're going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, and I've got to take you aside and rebuke you because that contradicts what I just said about you. All my, all my expectations and assumptions about what it means for you to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're, you're, you're now, you're now <laughs> with your creative impress, you're, you're, <laughs> you're perplexing me, right? The servant washing, washing his disciples' feet. You'll never wash my feet, right? What we're seeing all the way, we keep going with that, but the, the issue is here. The, the Lord has Israel on the potter's wheel. He's pressing in, pressing in, pressing in, calling something glorious forth, exposing something that cannot be there, inhibitions, removing them. All the while, there's this massive um, self-accommodation of God to Israel and adaptation of Israel to God, out of which we see two texts like this in the beginning, right? In the beginning. Now, in light of Jesus Christ, we go back to the beginning. Listen to this text, because this is what we're doing here and what we're going to do for the whole time, what we do all the time in our Christian life and certainly in theology. This quote right at the bottom of page one. <coughs> Excuse me. Israel teaches us, then, that divine revelation cuts against the grain of our naturalistic existence, and it calls into question the naturalistic patterns of human thought. If we are to know God in accordance with the way he's chosen, through Israel to Christ, and now that he's actually taken that, there is no other way. We must let the sword of divine truth that was thrust into Israel pierce our own hearts also, so that its secret contradiction of God may be laid bare. This is a glorious good work of God that he does in us. We must go to school with Israel and the apostles, that's what they've done, that's what they're showing us, and share with her the painful transformation of the mind and soul which prepared it for the final mediation of God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ. If we ourselves are to break free from our assimilation to the patterns of this world and be transformed through renewing of our mind in Christ, for only then will we be in a position to recognize, discern, appreciate what God wills to make known to us, which is what we're going to be talking about all along, right? So. If Israel's on a potter's wheel, you might think about what we're doing. It's, you know, we're at the baptismal font. We do theology right here at the baptismal font where we're living out this motion all the time, right? As we live out our baptismal identity and the creative impress of God, he's doing just that to us. So when we talk about um, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human, 
And if we're going to know what it means to be us, the first question we need to ask is, what does it mean to be me relative to the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? It's a creative, impressive God who's, 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 who's crucifying us to the world and, and pulling us from all the, all the false assimilation to the world that we, that we have so that we can actually do that holy thing. Does that make sense? So we might think of it like this. If you guys, if those of you who've studied language, you know, you know what a hapax legomenon is. But it's a, sing, it's a word that you have no cognate for anywhere else. And the way our minds work is we want to say, this is like that. I know what this is. It's like that. It's a great way to learn. What do we do when we're, we're confronted with the utterly unique singularity of the Lord Jesus Christ? The word, right, which is incomparable to any other word, right? Um, the fullness of what we see in Isaiah. To whom would you compare me? Jesus Christ is the hapax legomena, fully God, fully man, um, the one in whose face we see the reality of God, in whose voice we hear the reality of the voice of God, the trueness of the voice of God. Born of a virgin, risen from the dead, and reconciling the whole cosmos to itself. What do we do with him? All you can do is, is bow right here and say, then you must tell me who you are and what you mean, right? You, this singular word. To, to whom there's no one to compare, no one to compare, speak and tell me, right? So we're, we're going to school with Israel, if you would, and doing this and learning with the apostles to go right back to the beginning, right? Right back to the beginning. Knowing Jesus Christ, then, doesn't eliminate mystery, but what we're doing here and what we're going to keep doing, we're going to keep doing it for two years and hopefully, well, we're going to do it forever. Um, Jesus Christ is the revelation of a mystery, Right? Not a Sherlock Holmesian type of mystery, not the ways we think about mysteries in other realms, but a biblical mystery. Mystery in Scripture is revealed. He's the revelation of a mystery that deepens. The mystery deepens the more we go, right? So, so we don't get a revelation on mystery so as to eradicate the mystery, but the more we see, the further in and further up we go, the deeper the mystery goes. Think about Lucy with Aslan. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, course I'm bigger. You're bigger. You grew up, and as you grow up, I get bigger too. Right? So if it were the other way around, we'd say, we grow up so as to make you small. What a, what a sad endeavor, right? We press into the mystery, and the mystery grows. That's the way biblical mystery is. So Jesus Christ, the supreme mystery of God, right? He's the light of the world. He illumines all things. He makes sense of all things. What he never does in that is surrender his own inscrutability. He's always the Lord there. So one of the reasons we, you know, we think about this first step in theology is the Lord and the logos of theology. He's always the supreme Lord here, you know, before whom our knees are bowed. And he's the logos. He's the logic, right? God has a logic. The world has a logic. What it means to be a human has a logic. And it's all rooted and sourced in this one who's Lord of it all. <clears throat> I'm going to read you a quote just to, just to get us going here and think about it. It's uh, John Webster. He's a fantastic uh, Anglican theologian, um, passed a couple years ago. He's got a real penchant for writing obtusely. So I'll, I'll exposit as we go, but it's, what he's saying is so, we just have to get it. Theology cannot establish on its, on its own transcendental grounds, right, any other transcendental ground than the Lord Jesus Christ who is from the beginning. 
the conditions of, of the possibility of its object, right? We can't replace Jesus Christ and lay another foundation so as to, so as to provide the conditions under which he can be Lord, under which he can be this one. We can't do that to the world and to our critics. We can't do it for ourselves. Again, you see that in the apostles. You can't be this person, right? We know our foes have a problem with you, but we're saying as your friends, you can't be this person. We never established the grounds of the theological project. The, the Lagos does. The Lord and the Lagos does. To attempt to do so would be to adopt a perverse stance toward the object. He means the Lord, right? The object of our knowing of God and self. One which would indeed be an almost willing rejection of that object and claim. In other words, to, to act toward the Lord Jesus as if he actually weren't the Lord to act toward the Lagos as if he actually weren't, to bring our own Lagos, to bring our own conditions under which we would confer to him some kind of lordship, which is an oxymoron, obviously. <clears throat> For the object, God incarnate, the word made flesh, is not one more matter for the free play of our intellectual judgment. Rather, the object is himself, judge, holy, Originally, that's what we see in John and Paul saying that originally he is the origin. And perhaps the test of the authenticity of any theology would be whether it emerges from that judgment or prefers instead to establish an independent colony of the mind from which to make raids on the church's confession. I love that. In other words, right, we're not, we're not, um, um, self-appointed lords of the theological project who, you know, looking over the cosmos like the eye of Sauron saying, ah, there's Jesus, you come here, let me sort you out. It's quite the other way around, right? He says, come unto me, come unto me. And as in my creative impress, right, you'll emerge um, um, devoid of that idolatry. You'll actually be set on the right path. So right off the bat, when we think about the Lord and Lagos of, of Christian theology, who as fully God and fully man is the son of God who became son of man and entered the world as such so as to be the light of God, man in the world. We need to hear that right up front, right? That's, that's a big task. Do you guys want to say anything so far? Blake? Let's talk about this confession here right up front. What, does, what is the church's confession here? What do we say? You'll hear right up front. I've got the Nicene Creed here, and I've got the, our Anglican Catechism right below it to punctuate and illustrate it. It sounds a lot like Holy Scripture here. Who is the one in, who, in, in whom we believe? The Lord, Jesus Christ, the unique, the unique Son of God, who is eternally begotten of the Father, Begotten in this way, not, not, he's not procreated, right? He's begotten in this way, light from light, God from God. We'll talk about this in a minute. True God from true God. He's begotten, he is not made. He's the maker of all things, he's not made. Of one being, right? Of one divine reality with the Father. Everything we can say about um, Jesus Christ, we can say about the Father, except father. The nature of the relationship is the distinction in God's triune life. Everything. God is love. God is holy. God is almighty. God is glorious. Whatever we'd say about God, we'd say 
about Jesus Christ. He's not a lot like God. He is himself God in the self-exposition of God. He's of one reality with the Father. Through him all things were made, and by the power of the Spirit, in the fullness of time, born of a woman, the Virgin Mary, and was made man. You see it? Begotten, not made, relative to his godness. He was made man. This one who's the maker of all things in the fullness of time becomes what he created to commune and redeem that which he created, never ceases to be the eternal unmade one, the eternally begotten but unmade one. That's the church's confession, and there we go, right, right back to the baptismal font, because this is big stuff, right? So what I want to do is I want to just go through, you know, that first five or six pages, if we could, of uh, a call to Christian formation, just hit some of these big spots. Why is it important? Like, for instance, why does the church... Uh, why does scripture talk so much about in the beginning with Jesus Christ? Why is that so important? You see it eight or nine times in those two texts. Why do you see it in our confession? In the beginning, eternally begotten. What's so important about that? Eternally begotten. What do we mean? <clears throat> what we've always wanted to confess, because scripture teaches us to, is that there's no other ground that we, can, that we can lay before Jesus Christ. So as soon as we begin to confess Jesus Christ, we have to go back before the making of all things, including time and space, and say he doesn't, he doesn't rest in a preconceived understanding of the world, but actually everything we ought to understand about the world comes from him, right? He is the maker of all things, the maker even of time itself, right? So you'll see in our creed, he's eternally begotten. He is the beginning, Paul. In the beginning, John, he is before all things. Why eternality? Why is that so important? We're being rid from any kind of habit we might have to say something like, well, there's this eternal thing, right? Some impersonal abstraction that existed, that, that doesn't have God's creative impress on it. God might speak to it, but it exists alongside of God. It runs parallel to God. It might be something like love. Moderns love to do that, or even the good or something like that. There's this thing called the good, and it creates the conditions under which God might be good, so long as he can match that standard. That's got to go right to the baptismal font, right? <laughs> There's this thing called love, this impersonal abstraction it's existed maybe alongside of God, but he's not, the, he's not the Lord of it. He's not the substance and expression of it. He's not the conditions of it. So if he can match it, then we might say God's love. And you know, moderns love to think that they can outlove God, right? God is love, right? He is the self, in Jesus Christ, we have the divine self-expression of what love means and what love doesn't mean, what falls far short of that. Here, scripture does it with eternity. It rids us from any temptation to say, there's this, you know, infinite, ongoing, no beginning, no end, expansive, we might say time, right? Um, and Jesus is eternal because he can match that. There is no such thing as eternality, um, but because before time was, right, Jesus Christ is the maker of time. He's the Lord of it. It operates now under the, under the fall. He's even now redeeming that. <clears throat> what, is it, what is eternality? What does our creed want to teach us? And what does scripture teach, teach us? 
Eternality is the way that the Father, Son, and Spirit are in their, their life of holy love together that has no beginning and has no end. So when Jesus Christ says, I come to give you life eternal. What is life eternal? That you would know my Father. That you would have intimate communion with my Father and the one whom he has sent. And so be brought in, you know, to conflate that with the way, you know, he talks early in the Upper Room Discourse when the Spirit undertakes that indwelling ministry. You will, yada, right, gnosko, you will know, you will have firsthand intimate knowledge that I am in the Father, where I've always been, in the bosom of my Father. He is in me, I am in you, as the Spirit does who the Spirit is to you and who the Spirit's always been, the communion in God's life, right? The bond of communion in God's life as the Spirit brings you into that, you will know what you ought to know, and you'll know it experientially. Eternality is the way that God's triune self is with God and opening that up into the world. That's what our creed wants to tell us right away. So in the beginning, we've got to go back and say, wait a minute. Um, there's nothing that I can think about without the divine impress of Jesus Christ upon it. I will get my egos threadbare. So you guys got to talk to me or I'll get really insecure. No. Anything you want to say? Yeah, or, or to the extent we'd say that, right? So we'd have like a naturalistic read on death, moderns, you know. Death means the cessation of life, or the cessation of existence, let's say. No, it doesn't, right? Um, our existence goes on, but it's always wholly derivative. We have life, and all things draw their existence from the sun, right? They have, they have their very ontology rooted in the sun. So we could, we could think about things like that, we might sometimes th say things like, you know, when time will be no more. That will never be, right? It's a, a part of God's good creation. Time won't operate under the fall so that the passage of time for us and our experiences is that we grow old and die. Time won't be like that, right? It's a, it's a part of God's good creation. So it, eternality is um, the infinity of God's good creation in which we know eternally the life and love of God. Um, I just had an example that I wanted to say, Father Brett, and I forgot it. Um, I'll remember it. We'll leave it at that. Does that help? Yeah. So to say God is love, right, isn't to say God is capable of loving, right? God is, God is hypothetically loving. He has the capacity to love. He doesn't always do so, but he has the capacity to do it. That's far short of what we mean. What love is is who God is, right? 
And God who is, God isn't hypothetically God, he's always God, right? He's full on God all the time. So um, God, what God does is who God is. So God is always loving, God is love. So love has a source in Jesus Christ. Love has a Lord and Lord has a substance, right? That is, is, that is hard as a diamond, it's concrete, right? So when we think about, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? For the son so loved the world that he gave himself unto death, even death on a cross. We see something about the way God is love. Now in the upper room, right? I have shown you what it means to love. Now you go and love. Now you be in the world uh, and love the world um, on my terms um, and toward my holy ends, rather than what we might, we might be inclined to think. We wanna love the world on its own terms, its own agendas and its own ends. That's actually not love and it's not true, right? To say something um, very, very different, categorically different is love is love. Love is the referent of love. Love is the substance of love. Love is self-authenticating wherever you find it and however you understand it. That's categorically not the case. God is love. Love is submitted to the one who is not only the substance, the divine substance, but the divine substance who's humanly expressed in Jesus Christ. Our love has to conform to Jesus Christ. So later, I don't want to get too far ahead, but you know, we're going to talk about what it means to be authentically human. What does it mean to have authentically human emotions? And sometimes we think, well, there are good emotions and bad ones, right? Being angry or sad or you know, whatever, disappointed might be on the negative side. But love, love is self-authenticating. Our whole emotional realm is an expression of God's emotional life, humanly expressed in Jesus Christ, and it all needs to be sanctified. Our love needs to be sanctified as much as our contempt does, as much as our disappointment does, as much as our anger does, it's every bit is subject to the sanctifying impress of our Lord. And it has to be reconsidered and redefined, as it were, in conformity to him. In the beginning was love. And the reason that there's all things rather than no things is because in the triune life of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, there is holy, procreative love, right? that explodes out in the fullness of God's time into the making of all things so he can invite others into that love and so that he can give himself to the, the objects of his love. So right away, that's what we're talking about. Fully God, fully man. Let's think about that for, oh, sorry. Yeah. Right, so personhood doesn't begin with us. It's not a self-referential reality. Personhood doesn't begin with our primal parents in Genesis. Those persons are echoes of divine persons, right? So what does it mean? What, what can we say about personhood? We'll go there, but for now, maybe we can say something like this. There's no such thing, um, while there is such thing as individuality, right, a robust sense of I, We've got to have that. I've got to have a robust sense of I so I can relate to the thou of Kevin. But individualism is a false understanding of, of personhood where actually I don't gain personhood, I lose it. I denature it. 
right? Now, now I've got an identity crisis. True, authentic personhood, true, authentic identity has to be discerned and enacted communally. It has to be that. I can't run off and flight from, you know, the divine other and the human other to understand personhood so then I can relate. Because in the triune life of God, what do we see? A tri-personal God, right? A real, authentic I-ness in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But no sense ever in which, take our Lord, for instance. You know, you read through John's Gospel. You'll see it all over the place there. I've come to do nothing but to proclaim the good news of my Father. All that I do, I do on mission. I come in the name. That's that inclusive way to talk about that. I come in the name of the Father. Jesus Christ is the most authentic person, and not only divine person, but the most authentic human person, has no sense of himself outside of a relationship with the divine other and his utter self-giving to the human community. So when we talk about you know, the big conversations we have in our culture, what does it mean? What does identity mean? What does personhood mean? What does community mean? What does personhood in community mean? It's a conversation that has to start with the tri-personal life of God or it'll go nowhere good. Does that make sense? And these are not the ways that um, we don't naturalistically think this way. The creative impress of our, of, our, of our Lord has to come and teach us those things. The word that was from the beginning is never an abstraction from God. It's never just an utterance, right? Think Genesis. And God said, let there be light. What John and Paul are telling us is when God says, as soon as God moves out from his eternal inner self, his inner triune self, as soon as God expresses himself, moves outward in creation, he moves outward in creation in the word, the eternal word. The word of the Lord is never merely the, you know, um, the utterance of God you know, that goes out into the ether of the cosmos and just dissipates. The self-expression of God is always the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the word. All things were made through him. How does, how does the Father, all, if all things are from the Father, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, how are all things from the Father? Through the eternal Son. He's the redeemer of creation because he's first the Lord of it and the maker of it is he participates and is the mediating agent of that um, at the goodwill of his Father. We're always dealing with the Word. The Word was from the beginning. So we'd never want to think here something like, you know, as we read the Old Testament, we're reading about, you know, God or Yahweh being the Father, let's say, and he says to the Son and the Spirit, you got a long wait. Just go off and, you know, occupy yourself. At Bethlehem, Jesus, you're up. At Pentecost, Spirit, you're up. But nothing for you here. If God's triune, and that's what we're learning, then God does all things triunely. Just like we're human and you do all things humanly. You might not do them authentically humanly, but you do them humanly. God does all things triunely. Creation, to triune reality. In the beginning was the Word, and the, the self-expression of God, that Word that's resounded in the bosom of the Father since the beginning, as John tells us, is the self-expression of God. Does that make sense? It's not the right way to say it. Does that make sense? Um, anything you guys want to say there? 
me go back just for a second and talk just for a minute about procreation because our, our procreative realities, they're supposed to be an analogy. They're supposed to tell us something about God's life, right? They're supposed to do that. But they're different um, in the sense that even as we, we show forth what it means to bear God's image in this way, we're not God. So think about procreation, the way all of us come to be, right? It's timed. All of us, you know, we, we were born. We have a birthday. It's timed. It's a bodily reality. It's a gloriously bodily reality. And as procreation happens, there's ultimately a separateness. Umbilical cords get cut. There's a, there's a relationship, but there's a separateness. To, be, to begotten exists outside of the life of the begetter. Does that make sense? Now, again, there's something glorious. In Genesis, when God, when God creates all things, the first time he uses male and female is only for the human. Male and female, he made them. Now, are there male and female foxes and goats and bulls and tigers? Yes. God doesn't talk like that. Because we procreate and animals mate and breed. We don't do that. We procreate. We participate in the proliferation of the image of God on the earth. Right? What we do is unique that way as image bearers. But think about divine begetting. Not timed, our creed tells us. The gospels tell us not timed. Happens before time. Time's a creature. Not bodily. There was no time when the sun wasn't, but there was a time when the sun wasn't incarnate. Not bodily. An act within the life of God where the, son, where the Father, the unbegotten, gives all that he has to the Son, and the Son receives all that he has from the Father. Right? And there's real distinctness. There's mutuality. There's self-giving. There's profound relationality. But all the while, the distinctness is rooted in unity. No separateness, no separation whatsoever. The one who is fully God and fully man is eternally one with the Father. Now, why is that so important? Well, lots of reasons, but in the fullness of time, he's born of a woman, right? He's made man. He's made man. In the sending of the Son, he doesn't go away from the Father. If you could think crudely about, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, like three Legos, right? It's not like, and then in the fullness of time, the middle one dropped out. And the Son and the Spirit looked and said, oop, <laughs> now what? He's eternally one with the Father so that his coming near to us is an ascending away from the Father, but in the Father's sending of the Son is the Father drawing near to us as he's intended all along, right, in the life of Israel on the potter's wheel. So I have till 10.30, right? Okay. Um, so think about this potter's wheel, right? Think about Israel, law, liturgy priesthood, kingship, the prophetic offices. Israel's not just an, an ethnos, if you will. It's not just a nation. It's a laos. It's a people of God. All the while, what we see in progressive revelation is the, the lineage of God becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. And then right out of the womb of Israel comes Jesus Christ, in whose face we behold God in whose face we behold the Father because the drawing near of the one who's eternally in the bosom of the Father brings the Father near. So Jesus can say, look at me, and you see the Father. There's nothing unchristlike in the Father. Everything that he is, I reveal to you, and I reveal it to you humanly because the only thing you can receive anything is humanly, ultimately. So you, God has so accommodated himself to us in Jesus Christ 
that he humanly manifests who God is. So we can humanly, not only humanly understand, as it were, but humanly participate. Now, why is that so important? What we see in the Lord Jesus is it's of God's will, right? It's natural in this sense that to be fully and authentically human doesn't mean that you have to exist outside the life of God. But Jesus Christ is fully human and in the bosom of the Father. Right? He really, truly communes there. God doesn't evacuate himself into the body of Jesus like a, like a genie bottle or something like that, right? He doesn't do that. Humanity, first and foremost, in Jesus Christ, communes and communes profoundly in God's life. And for humanity to do that, first and foremost, in Jesus' life, doesn't evacuate or eviscerate humanity into the abyss of the divine or something like that. But Jesus Christ is truly human, truly, authentically human, like us in every way. Where does he exist? In the bosom of the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father's in me. First him, then us. Our humanity doesn't get absorbed into the divine. We are truly and authentically human, and can only be actually authentically human as we abide and, and, and abide where Jesus Christ is, in the bosom of the Father. Right? That's where you can express and enact authentic humanity. Yes. Yeah, how do we, how do we think about um, the, Father, the Father and the Spirit's relationship to Mary as she's the divine bearer of Jesus Christ, right? Or as, as you know, that was a big issue in the early church, in Nestorianism, we'll talk later about that, but uh, he was an archbishop of Constantinople. He hated that Christian habit of Christians calling Mary the mother of God. And he always wanted to say, no, 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 no. She's the mother of Jesus, right? She's the bearer of God, but she's not the mother of God. And what we see in the creed is the church saying, nope. Why does the creed want to say that? To bear the humanity of Jesus is to bear. the divine one, right? In whom the whole fullness, that's the way Colossians talks twice it does that. The whole fullness, and that's, that's actually like a clumsy way to say it, right? It's words stuttering, like how do, you, how do you say this? The whole fullness of God dwells bodily, right? So Mary doesn't receive one third of God in Jesus Christ, um, uh, an, an aspect of God. She receives the whole fullness of God there. We most certainly want to say that. Can I riff on that for a couple minutes? In him, all things hold together, right? By the way, apart from him, all things fall apart. All things fall apart. So what is, you know, what are some of the things culturally that we really wrestle with and that are kind of engines for all things falling apart? We struggle profoundly with things like... Um, a sense of identity where we don't, we don't look outward and say, how do I discern and enact my I-ness in a community? We tend to say, let me look inward um, in a self-referential way. 
pronounce upon myself, and then when I turn out, try to make, make, make society, as it were, conform to my self-pronounced identity, something like that. That's a tendency we have, and all things fall apart. They have to, right? And so we wrestle with things like sexuality, ethnicity, heritage, you know, we call it race, um, but we never want to say when we do that there's humankinds, right? There's distinct heritages, uh, biologies, right? But we're a people, we're a humanity. And we deal with class and status and things like that. Think about the baptismal font in, in Galatians 3. In Jesus Christ, there is no Jew and Greek. There is no male and female. There's no slave and free, right? Social status. What's old is what's new, right? We would wrestle with those very same things, maybe with different vocabulary and in different ways, but it's something that's of the flesh, and so it just always laps, right? It, it changes and morphs in different times and in different cultures. But what's being said there? That's a baptismal text, for one. So when we're baptized into Jesus Christ and into, or, and crucified in him and then crucified to the world so that we can live in the world, some of the, some of the mythologies that surround those things that are really important actually need to go, right? So that text is surely not saying, there's no male and female, we're all androgynous in Jesus Christ. It's not saying that, but it's saying, what it means to be truly human is even deeper still um, than what it means to steward that humanness in a, in a very distinct way, like I would as a British-Swedish man. That's a particularity, and that's the way I steward my humanity, but if I ever make that the ground of my humanity, I'll lose my humanity. So what it means to be human, we find in Jesus Christ. Parlay this, think of it here too, in that same baptismal song that we sing all the time in Ephesians 4. There's one Lord, one Father, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, one. What do we learn? In God, we always start with the one so that we can move to the many. We can move to king, true kingdom diversity. And the one is relative and orientated to the one in whom all things hold together. But if we start with any kind of self or socially constructed notion and then try to get from the many to the one, we, we proliferate endless diversity. You can get to the many, but you gotta start with the one. All things hold together in him. So now when we think about this issue, which is a huge one, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ takes his humanity, as, as Chalcedon says, right? Um, he is of one being with the, with the Father and the Spirit relative to his divinity. Everything we can say about the Father and the Spirit relative to divinity, we can say about Jesus. The only thing we can't is Father and Spirit. And then when we think about ministry, we also can't say incarnate for the Spirit, not that. Everything we can say about Jesus' humanity, he gets from his mother, right? He, he receives his humanity from his mother. So what God does is he actually gives himself to the way in which he's made things right from the beginning. From, from the first man comes the woman. From her, the pinnacle of creation, comes everyone, male and female. And in the incarnation, Jesus Christ enters there and receives his humanity from her, right? From her. What is he doing right there when we think about a reconciling act of God and humanity? 
Jesus Christ is reconciling heaven and earth. He's reconciling God and humanity. He's, rec- he's reconciling the male-female rupture right in the womb of the virgin. He's doing a cosmic reconciling act that begins right there. I think about this, this kind of big meta-narrative. For the redemption of the world, the one through whom all things are made comes, second person of Trinity. He enters in, makes himself small. He enters into our humanity. He doesn't negate our humanity or anything like that. He enters in. And in the power of the Spirit, he receives all that he is humanly from his mother, right? Our humanity is taken up into the life and mission of God in the sanctifying power of the Spirit right there. By the way, that's why, you know, it's a Christmas song when we sing. Um, Oh, shoot. How does it go? It's It's a great Wesley song. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Right there, the eternally begotten one is begotten again by the power of the Spirit. We need to be begotten again by the power of the Spirit. Well, the pattern of that is participation in Jesus Christ. He's the twice begotten one. And it all begins in the womb of a virgin, right? Now, as he goes, he enters into a virgin womb. He exits, says Luke 23, he exits from a virgin tomb. Scripture is really clear. There's, there's, and, and Joseph of Arimathea put him in a tomb in which no one has ever been laid. It's an inclusio. He enters in. He's utterly unique. What he does here is utterly unique. He enters in. He takes our humanity. He brings heaven to bear upon earth. He brings creator to bear upon the creation. Creator takes within his own life creation. He lives the life we can't. More on that later. He dies the death we can't. He precedes us in death, so our death isn't an abject horror. He actually transforms it because he transforms everything he touches from womb to tomb. He exits a tomb from which no one has been laid, and he brings earth to bear upon heaven. That's why we can talk about a sacramental universe. Jesus Christ has brought heaven and earth together in his very self and through him, you know, to us. But all that he receives humanly, he receives from his mother. It's really, really, really important because he's healing and reinstituting In the beginning, male and female, he made them image of God. In the new beginning, he reconstituted them, male and female, the renewed image of God. And now we, of course, talk about the church later, right? So the feminine, the authentic female genius of what it means to bear God's image has to be understood relative to Jesus Christ. And there's lots of things we obviously got to talk about, but you have to start right there. If we don't start there, we will never get anywhere good. Let me just say this. Um, so much to say. When you think about fully God, fully man, make sure you, you, you root this in the life of Israel. It's really important. <clears throat> um, because what it does is it, it, maybe I can say it this way. If you, if you in your own thinking and, and acting and you know, your own imagination, if you pull Jesus Christ from the life of humanity in any way, what you're going to pull him from is Israel. That's a problem. You're going to pull him from the feminine. 
that's a problem, and you're going to pull him from the church. So you're going to have a non-ecclesial um, um, piece of what? Um, Gnosticism. I'll just say it like that. So right here, we want to make sure we're rooting this in the life of Israel. He's the true son of Abraham, true son of Mary. And as he fulfills that unique mission that Israel has, he's the savior of the world, precisely because he fulfills that mission, right? And so he has ethnic specificity, right? He has all the specificities that come with authentic humanity, and he grounds our authentic humanity. So one of the things we need to do, going back to that fun, is as we go on, and we'll do lots of it, but one of the things we need to do is, is reverse the catechesis that we get from the world, which would be something like, how would I, as a 20th century, you know, um, European extract um, American, understand my humanity relative to Jesus? We're catechized to ask that question. We have to go right here and say, what does it mean to be authentically human? And now what does it mean to express that authentic humanity under the lordship and the logoshood of Jesus Christ and all the particularities that I have it? and to do it so that my expression of my humanity actually fosters the, the unity and the reconciling of all things in Jesus Christ. It's one of the things that we, got, that we want to do here as we go. Jesus Christ is the twice begotten one. I've already said it, but really important, right? Eternally begotten of the Father, but in the fullness of time, re-begotten, made by the Virgin. Right? What's he doing? He's bringing eternity and time together. He's bringing eternity to bear upon time. He's reconciling all of those things um, that would otherwise, or that would, that would tempt us to think in very disparate ways about them. In Jesus Christ, time participates in eternity. That's what our liturgy tells us all the time. Right? Time participates in eternity in Jesus Christ because he is redeeming it. Right? He's redeeming all things. He's actually re-liturgizing the world. The man born blind, Jesus picks up, picks up dirt, right? Cursed is the ground because of you, first Adam. The second Adam, the light of the world, right? The man born blind, he lives in darkness. Right? He, takes, he takes that. You know, why do we sing joy to the world? As far as the curse is found, he comes to make his blessing known. He picks up the dirt, he holds it in his holy hands, he massages it. He repurposes it for the illumination and healing of the world, right? He's repurposing all things in himself. We start right here. If we're going to be able to think really big, um, we start right here. Let me read you this just because it's so magnificent. This is another Christmas hymn, but here we're, we're before that wonder, right? And we actually, theology, <laughs> one of my favorite theologians says, a lot of people think that Christian theology is getting answers to all your questions. He says that's absolutely wrong, and you'll see it, you'll see it in Jesus' ministry all the time. He says it's actually learning how to be quiet and still and let the Lord question us. And what happens there is we learn what true questioning is. We learn to ask good questions and right questions. Think about the way the Pharisees question Jesus. He always turns them, right? He's teaching us what true questioning is. So part of theology isn't to domesticate and tame the Lord um, but it's actually to say and think and act into realities that we, we, can, we can really know him. We can't, we can't tame, we can't comprehend, but this way, but in true apprehension, now actually wonder can break loose. 
right? And it, and it, and it moves against all of that kind of this, this, living a life like this does not induce you to be a person with a great capacity for wonder, right? He's doing this. So when we think about fully God, fully man, this is what we're talking about. H.R. Bramley, it's on page three, right in the middle there. A babe on the breast of a maiden he lies, yet sits with the father on high in the skies, right? Not a second leg, piece of Lego that falls down. Before him, their faces the seraphim hide. Holy, holy, holy. And the, the whole temple was filled with the holiness of God. While Joseph stands waiting, unscared by his side. A wonder of wonder which none can unfold. The ancient of days is an hour or two old. The maker of all things is made of the earth. Man is worshipped by angels. And God comes to birth. Right, if we're going to learn how to think about all things in Jesus Christ and enjoy all things in Jesus Christ and, and, all, and, and Christ in all things, it's right here. Right? It's right with that creative impress that the Lord is constantly bringing to us, opening up um, aspects of us that need to be opened up, ridding us of any kind of ossification or anything else, wound that's going to inhibit that. So let me just say this. What time have I got? I still got eight minutes. I'm going to say it quick because I'd rather engage you guys this way. But things we, we have to say as we're putting it together, as we're putting together the things that Jesus puts together as fully God and fully man. Our Lord Jesus Christ has two natures, a perfect divine nature, right? A perfect divine nature. He's fully God. He's not, he's not a vague approximation of God. He's fully God. What it means to know God, believe in God, is what it means to know and believe in Jesus. Full stop. Because he opens up the triune life of God to us there. His divinity is, or I'm sorry, his divinity is shared with and the same as God the Father and God the Spirit. And his humanity is shared with and the same as, not similar to, ours. His two natures, divine and human, exist concurrently. So at the, in, the incarnation is an amalgamation. It's not a, you know, God wasn't thrown into a neutral bullet, divinity and humanity, and it's just all a jumbled up mess. There's a true, authentic expression, a preservation, if you will, of divinity and humanity right there. Divinity and humanity in the closest possible approximation they could be, hypostatic union, right? Personal union in the person of Jesus Christ. Authentic humanity, authentic uh, the humanity and the preservation, right, of both at the same time. So that what Jesus Christ is or who he is, is he's the divine self-expression of God. Only God can ultimately reveal God, right? Jesus Christ is fully God and the divine self-expression. He's also the divine self-expression of what it means to be human. He's the, he's the authentic human one, right? And as the incarnate one, his exposition of our humanity is God's exposition of our humanity. He's the, he's the divine expression of that and enactment of that, right? He actually enacts and embodies our humanity. It's, it's not an abstraction. It's a living person and personal union with the divine. So that in Jesus Christ, what we want to say is... Um, he does human things divinely and divine things humanly. He doesn't have God and human switches, 
right? So um, the raising of Lazarus, off with the human switch, on with the God switch, and God does this. The person of Jesus Christ does this. Now, why that's so important? Next week when we talk about he's the divine self-expression of God. What do the tears of Jesus mean? Do they tell us something about God's emotional life? If we want to, I think what I'll do next week is we can do a couple, you know, almost like case studies. God is holy. What does it mean that God's holy? It means exactly who Jesus Christ is to us. Because not only is he the revelation of God, but he's the enactment of who God is. So he enacts the holiness of God. So ultimately the question is, who Jesus Christ is, or who God is, right? who the Father is in the power of the Spirit, is who Jesus Christ is with us and to us. He's that. What does the suffering of Jesus Christ tell us about God's life? What do these things tell us about our life, right? So if we say that, he does divine things humanly and human things divinely, as, as scripture in the church teaches us to say, now we can say. Jesus Christ isn't, isn't carrying forth a part of God's life, and there's a different God behind the back of Jesus Christ. He's a good cop. He's really nice. But there's a, there's a God behind the back of Jesus Christ who's quite unlike him that you should be afraid of. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the love of God displayed and enacted, right? Tells us who the Father is. What, is it, what, what does the wrath of God mean? What does it look like? It looks exactly as it's enacted in Jesus Christ. It's not something more sinister, right, with a, with a disparate God behind his back. Jesus Christ is the fullness of, of that. The words of, of Jesus Christ, the human words and human language, the, the kind of self-disclosure of God that we can grasp, that, that we're wired to grasp, he says true things about God humanly. Another way we could say that is there's one mediator between God and man. And then Paul says, the man, Jesus Christ. The mediation of God's life to us is humanly mediated because it must be humanly received because we can only do things humanly. So if we're going to receive the life of God, we have to receive the life of God humanly. That's exactly what Jesus Christ does. So with that, I think we can, we can start to... We can start to open this up in terms of um, those other things. Do you guys want to say anything? We have, th- we have three minutes. So how do we understand the particularities or begin to, begin to live in, into the um, affirming and seeing and acknowledging the particularities of Jesus Christ relative to ourself and the other in our midst? So Jesus Christ is, right, he, he, he lives the divine life in our human nature forever, right? So at the, at the ascension, he doesn't, like, unzip a meat suit and dissolve into the ether, right? Humanity has eternal life in the embodied reality of Jesus Christ. Our bodies are to conform to his body. He is eternally a Jewish man, right? He has a Y chromosome. He has a glorified Y chromosome that he received, right, in his humanity. He's Jewish in terms of his ethnicity. So now, you and I, who I'm assuming, I'm not, I don't think you are either, we're the goyim, right? So when we come up here and we do this, right, what do we receive in our, in our bodies? 
the body of Jesus Christ in my body, the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you guys ever thought about this? At the Lord's table, right, where we commune with Jesus Christ and one another, he's reconstituting our bloodlines so that you and I can say, I'm actually, I have, a, I have a heritage, I have a history, right? I've got stories from my, my family. I'm actually really proud of that. But it can never be the thing. It always, has to, it always has to be relative to Jesus Christ. First and foremost, I'm an authentic humanity in that one who stewards his authentic, the authentic humanity in a very specific way. Now I can start to think otherwise about that. And another thing we gotta bring in, and we will, but you gotta talk about everything. You can't, you gotta, bring things in right up, right up to bat at some level. We are never to think about Jesus Christ apart from the body. Any Jesus Christ that you can conceive of apart from his body is an idol. Ephesians 1. And the Father has given him, you know, to be head of all things, particularly to the church, comma, which is his body, comma, the fullness of Jesus Christ. Right? In the Greek, it's even, and indeed it is his body. <laughs> That's the way Paul says it in the Greek. Um, Jesus Christ will not be who he is apart from his body. If you ever want to think, start to think about what sin is, it's us saying, well, I will ground my own humanity apart from you. He says, I won't be who I am apart from you. So when we're thinking about Jesus Christ, it's the head of the body and bride. Right? And that's the context in which now we start to think about what it means to be male and female, right? married and celibate. Right? All of those things, we have to steward them. That's got to be the hermeneutical context for doing it. What it means to be different ethnicities, as you and I are right now, having that conversation, with the particularities that don't, be, that don't undermine the ground of our oneness so that the, that the particularities can actually be not only authentic but celebrated but never the, never the thing. They always have to be relative to that, that other thing. So Christ and his church, right? There's no, there's no head floating around without a body because that's just gross. And the body of Christ without the head, not a pretty thing. Decapitated corpses, not winsome, right? The, the head with the body, Christ and his church, as the early church would say, the totus Christus, the total Christ. God and humanity reconciled together. That's the place we, we in light of the baptismal font, that's the place we, we gotta think about all these things. And then we can be ministers of reconciliation to the world. That's why, we, that's why you have to be crucified to the world. Because if you're not crucified to the world, you can never be a blessing to the world. You can never do that, so we can't be thinking um, in the common modes of thinking and the vocabulary and the ideation that the world has because we've got a divine revelation here that speaks a word of peace and, and reconciliation to the world. That's good for a day. That's good for a day. Let me pray if I could. Living Lord Jesus Christ, continue to bring us to where you are. Um, you tell us, you promise us that you will abide in us. We must abide in you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Certainly not say true things about you and the way things truly are. So inhabit our prayers and our praises right now and um, do your good and holy work in our midst. Um, release us uh, from any undue fear, 
Um, release us into your peace and your joy and your holy rest. Um, dignify us with, a, with, a, with a, a burden that isn't too heavy for us, but a burden nonetheless. Um, dignify us with that. Make us responsible, uh, joyful, missional people in, in all these things. We pray you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.